You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy While Muslim. This is Uzma Jaffrey. And this is Zeba Hassan. How are you, my dear friend, today? I am excellent. Tell me about your week. So we are battling our first cold post-COVID, like bad summer colds. So I have been going from doctor to doctor with gross green mucus and dealing with um, man colds and kid colds. And now I'm feeling like I'm getting sick, but I don't know if it's psychosomatic. Do you think it is? Well, you're going to be the last person, right? So if everybody else is sick, then it's your turn. Oh my God. Because that's, I mean, who knew that masks actually worked? Exactly. Yeah. They can and this is sick. our first time getting sick. So I'm just battling that and going from doctor to doctor to doctor. And I have to tell you, I'm sick of seeing you doctors. Sorry. And uh, if I never see another doctor, it will be way too soon. But, <laughs> but you want to tell We me- have a recording again next week. So you're going to see me again. Oh man, darn it. Okay. Every week. Man, no break. So how was your week? So you were talking about sick kids. We have talked about Cheetos multiple times on this (laughs) podcast and my love for Cheetos, but not red hot flaming Cheetos. Like my nasty kids like to eat once a week, every Sunday, I get them their bags and the boys are growing. So the whole like party size flaming hot Cheetos, they will eat them. And that's like what they eat throughout the day. So my oldest finished his second vaccination this weekend and, you know, he was febrile. I thought, okay, he said, my stomach hurts. And I said, oh, son, maybe it's from the vaccine. Why don't you lie down? So he lies down on an upholstered bench, by the Uh -uh. way. And then I hear this like sneeze and then, you know, you, you know, what, I'm like, oh "Oh my God. And I turned around to make fun of him. Like, ew, nasty. You got boogers. And I see red like spewing in 360 because he covered his mouth. He was trying not to barf. And that made it go like exorcist style, man, like 360 around the kitchen. I'm like, dude, just on the floor, just on the floor here on the tile. But his disgust was covered. It looked like he was bleeding like a horror movie. And I was like, did you eat red hot Cheetos? And he was like, yeah, dad bought me an extra bag after my vaccine because I wanted it. I was like, we're done with this poison because now I have to get my bench professionally clean. So no more red hot Cheetos. Oh, a girl, I could have told you stop with the red hot sheet. Anything with the fake color. What the have red I told number you about 40? that? I know. No, I tell them it's cancer in a bag, but they're yes. like, oh, we'll only eat it while we're kids. So we won't eat it as adults. I'm like, okay, well, this is when it matters. So whatever. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I don't know about you, but we're, like I said, we're all getting sick. I'm trying to get, fight the illnesses before we actually finally go on our trips. Mm-hmm before we are exposed to our parents and I haven't seen anybody in two years. So I'm like, this is the best time to get sick. Let's do this now. now. But my kids are still having to get tested for COVID even after being um, vaccinated. And apparently 
the that derivative or the whatever it's called mm -hmm. is pretty rampant here in the northern Virginia area. So we are waiting for our COVID tests and fingers crossed we're under quarantine right now. So our hopes is um, we're under quarantine, but to be honest with you, we've been out for the last eight days. So sorry That's for all the people. Well, we didn't know and sorry for all the people because we didn't know and we were masked everywhere, even outside. So okay, thankfully we were masked and we're going to hope and pray inshallah, we did not pass that along. So inshallah. I am super curious to see what your soapbox for today is. Our soapbox for today is the death of Donald Rumsfeld who dun, if you guys dun, don't dun. know, yeah, <laughs> was like a 60-year career politician. He died at the age of 88. And Muslims know him really, really well, sadly, because, um, not because of this part, but I'll get to it. Um, he served in the Office of Economic Opportunity under Nixon. So he was around when the whole Watergate thing happened. And Nixon called him a ruthless bastard. So if Nixon said uh -oh. about you, like, this is not a good precedent, right? So, and he ended up chief of staff to Ford, has served four presidents, chief of staff to Ford, um, graduated to the youngest secretary of defense under Ford. And the interesting thing about him is, okay, Zeba, you and I were born in Chicago. Just brace your heart. He's also mm -hmm. from Chicago. No. I'm sorry. And he attended the University of Chicago where Leo Strauss taught. So basically, you know, all American neoconservative conservatism or the neocons derive a lot of their political philosophies and actions based on the teachings of Leo Strauss, even though he himself was like, I'm just a philosopher, dude, don't actually go do this. And what is this? pro-imperialism and the spread of liberal democracy through military conquest. Mm -mm. Hmm. What did Donald Rumsfeld do? Um, this is really, before I get into that, all of Leo Strauss's teachings are translated into Chinese. China teaches Leo Strauss. <laughs> That's true. There's they a reason do. For that, right? <laughs> they so, do. They do. <laughs> they do. So, um, as Secretary of Defense, he oversaw the creation of Team B, which was a special force of the CIA unit, because he was afraid that the Soviets were out um, gunning America. And look at that. Eventually, the Soviets fell. Quinky dink. I don't think so. Um, he is the uh, what is it? kind of the launching point for the shock and awe campaign that we had in the invasions of both Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, he is also the writer of the memos for the torture in Abu Ghraib, guys. Remember that? That's why he ended up resigning in 2006, because the Abu Ghraib torture and the other torture that was being done, um, I think he called it advanced interrogation techniques, but International Criminal Court says it's, you know, torture. But they never, lots of suits were brought against him, but civil suits from, you know, former prisoners uh, who were tortured. But uh, there was a particular conservative judge who threw those out and said, we can't sue him because he was serving as Secretary of Defense. That would be like suing the American government, which apparently you can't do. So he got away with it. No problem. And he died being worth like $200 million dollars. Because he, Ooh. yeah. So when he started under G.W. Bush, he was worth like $27 million, 20 to 50. Mm. You're not sure because he was a pharmaceutical investor. Okay. Yes, he was. That's totally legit, except pharma sucks. Um, <laughs> Says the doctor. By the time, <laughs> it does. You know, I hate pharma. I love medicine. I hate pharma. Um, 
by the time he left in 2006, he was worth $127 million. So mm. winky dink. Um, this came out yesterday. One of his vacation homes, I think in Baltimore, so it's close to you, is being sold or has sold for $2.4, $2.5 million. It's called Mount Misery. Why? Frederick Douglass wrote about it too. That mm -hmm. is where you were sent if you were um, an uppity slave and you were sent to the slave breaker because that was that was a, a job you could have and you would break the slave. So he was broken at 16 at Mount Misery. And that was Rumsfeld's vacation home. So I hope the ghosts of all of the slaves that were tortured there follow you to hell, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, we believe he is responsible for killing over 4 million Muslims since 9-11. We're not sure because even in Iraq, we don't know the numbers. We're going to find mass graves in 20 years, maybe mm -hmm. 30. Um, it'll come. It'll come. And the court of Allah is where the justice will be because we didn't get it in while he was alive. So that's our soapbox for today. First of all, can I just say, why would anybody want to have a vacation house in Baltimore? I'm not can sure. I just say that? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so maybe he deserves lobster? it. I'm not sure. No, the lobster is good. And the, you know, the Bay Area, it's, it's beautiful, Crab, but cakes. I'm not sure I would want to have a vacation house there. But, you know, our Joe is not here today. He is on vacation, speaking of which. And so you, that's Joe. why you're seeing a, a little bit of a different format today. And as you can see on the bottom of my screen, um, we are kicking up this month um, of our Muslim representation in entertainment. And we have an amazing, amazing lineup of different writers and artists and scholars who actually have studied this particular narrative as the mom of, of, of an expiring actress, um, as she said, she claims that's her claim to fame. And that's what she wants to do. And I'm going to support her. You know, I'm, of course, very much particular about some of these roles for um, women in general, let alone young women, uh, Muslim women in um, Hollywood right now. Um, and pretty nervous about it, but I want to support and push her forward because this is one of her dreams. Um, but I'm kind of also a little bit annoyed about the depicted, uh, the depictation of Muslim Americans and Muslims in general in media right now, which a lot of people are, uh, are also. So, you know, what we're trying to do is really focus on representation in the media. And I think things are starting to get a little bit better because there are so many amazing folks like who are we going to have on the, on this month. That is why, you know, Uzma and I are podcasting because we want to share and promote this platform with other amazing people. And today first to kick off this month is somebody who um, is one of the the biggest names in this particular area. And her name is Dr. Metha L. Hassan. Is it Hassan also? Like, 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 Hassan? Hassan. Oh, Hassan. Hassan. See, so um, take add the L for me, and I'm Hassan as well. Um, she has her doctorate in American Studies and Ethnicity from U USC, because, you know, on top of everything else, she has a PhD. Um, past pop culture collaborative fellow, resulting in her report, The Huck in Hollywood, illuminating 100 years of Muslim tropes and how to transform them in 2018. It identifies the cinematic history of depicting Muslims, the political reasons for the narratives created, and their effects on public opinion, which is like everything we are wanting to talk about today. As social justice worker, she's establishing a social justice institute, encouraged creative resistance, prison bail reform, trauma-informed healing of refugees, and now serving with the Muslim Narrative Change Cohort. We've talked about Rami a couple of times here, whether you love him or hate him, 
you know, we're still talking about him. And she's now one of the co-executive producers of that hit show. And we are so excited to talk to her today and talk about representation in the media. Welcome, Dr. El Hassan. And it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Alaikum, welcome. Salamu alaikum, folks. Um, I am actually very thrilled to be in this conversation, just hearing about some of the critiques of Flaming Hot Cheetos, though. Um, <laughs> I know, sorry. I, I mean, I, I was exactly what your what your child aspires to be was a former Flaming Hot Cheetos mm-hmm. enthusiast, mm-hmm. and I haven't I haven't touched that red uh, artificial Cancer in a bag. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I love the soapbox around Donald mm-hmm. Rumsfeld. Did you know that Leo Strauss also studied Al-Farabi and Spinoza? Yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah, and he um, derived a lot of his teachings from us. Of course, as they all do. They always do. They obfuscate that history because it empowers them to, um, to just see themselves as part of, or the origin of the lineage of the production of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. That's, history that's begins important. with white history, like Greek, yeah, Western, Roman, Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian history is the beginning yeah. of time. Anything before that was the Dark Ages, even though what were the, we like literally the, dark the ages. constellations and like mapping everything out at that time? But you know, whatever. but it's, it's it's so funny. This is the way that they force us into their hegemonic worldview is to say, oh, medieval equals dreary. Mm-hmm. drudgery, misery. But that's not the whole world. It was one of the smallest points geographically in the world that experience such a, a massive extinction of their population through plague and really we're living in I mean the medieval times also needs to get redone and reassessed because I also think it's part of capitalist propaganda to portray it mm-hmm. as a time of only sur- um, serfdom but mm-hmm. There's a lot to shoot. Anyways, we could also it. talk, talk that, about that's a whole other podcast as we always talk about. We're like, that's yeah. a whole nother podcast. But it's podcast. like, I have butterflies because I'm so excited. I've been so looking forward to this conversation because you're like speaking <laughs> my love language. Um, are we calling you Dr. Al-Hassan? You could call me whatever you could call Dr. Maitha Al-Hassan or Maitha or... I'm going to call you, you Dr. Al-Hassan because you spent a lot of time you in earn school. it. I, I you think you earned, earned it, it, girl. So we're going to call I mean, you have You're a doctor that they could call on a plane and you'd yes. be useful. I'm only useful if you need help with your argument on a plane. That's yeah. like when the intercom happens. There's been like two or 300 incidences on planes this year. You know, the anti-maskers, like actually attacking oh, yes. flight attendants. So you're important. <laughs> I'm just letting you know. <laughs> So we usually kick off the podcast by asking our guests to tell us their mom's story. And if they don't have kids yet, then please tell us about your mom and her influence on your body of work. Yeah. My mom is the mother of six children. Oh, mashallah. Mashallah. She, I'm second eldest and the eldest daughter. So there was an interesting investment in me as Mm -hmm. somebody that she could see the life that she wanted to live through. And of Mm -hmm. course we talk about the vicariousness, but really my mom was raised by a very strict, shrewd father and not in in interesting enough, not in a um, religiously conservative way, but in a much more um, patriarchal cultural way. And she, her dreams were to be a writer. And later I find out poet, 
which oh, is yeah. so interesting because I didn't know that she wrote poetry until last year. What? Oh, yeah. That's amazing. And, um, so she was a voracious reader, continues to be. She has a library that just, uh, it, it competes with any scholar academic. Wow. Um, so she really wanted to have this professional trajectory that spoke to the way that she loved reading, writing, and creating. I mean, now she does, um, she loves sewing. So she, sew, she was sewing masks during the quarantine and using the embroidery feature on her sewing machine to put our names in Arabic and to write oh, more little love messages in Arabic. And um, so, so because she was prevented from that, and actually she was raised in a very aristocratic, wealthy household. And so her father would try to pay her off to submit to his worldview. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, so she, when she sees me out in the world, writing, speaking, being fully myself, that's what invigorates her. And I would say the other mama, mommy lesson that I learned from her thinking about my four brothers, mm -hmm. um, of course, there's patriarchy because we live in a patriarchy for men in invisible ways, unacknowledged ways, but I've never met men so disconnected from patriarchy like my brothers. Oh, yes. so, so it's possible. <laughs> possible. It is possible. And she did it with I, and this is what I've been sitting and analyzing because I've been thinking about as I'm searching for a partner, thinking about the future and how difficult it is mm -hmm. to meet somebody at the level of my brothers, which is so strange yes. to say, Don't right? You're not no, going to find it's, it. <laughs> it's, a it's a blessing, girl. It's a blessing. Yeah, yeah. So her strategy was she was primarily the person who raised us, my father was working 364 days a year. He dropped us off at school at 7 a.m. And then we'd see him for dinner at 10. So mm -hmm. we didn't really encounter the parenting of my father as much, but he did provide for us. And so my mother was just unconditional about her effusive love for us. And that just seems to be the touchstone of mm -hmm. healthy parenting. Um, and that's what I've noticed in a shift in how how we see ourselves, how we love ourselves and love each other. Um, and again, I'm just taking the lessons from what it means as a mother to raise men who yes. are respectful to their uh, female partners mm -hmm. um, and raising their daughters very differently too and yes. their sons as well. So I'm just impressed with the way that she mommied. And I love that your mom was there for you and she did all of that because kudos. Now look at you. You're like the head of like some of these amazing things. You're controlling the narrative in Hollywood, which by the way, we absolutely 100% need right now, especially as the next generation, we're a little bit more open about our children going into these types of fields. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the significant findings that you, yeah. from your studies for, from the pop culture collaborative, because I know as a mom of a somebody of a potential actress, I have been a little bit leery and I want to be supportive and I'm pushing her out, but we have had very frank conversations about what are appropriate things that we would 
you know, find ex socially acceptable and other things that I think would be a little bit outside the realm of our moral, our moral structure um, as a community. Yeah. Thank you for providing a platform for this conversation. I produced more of a qualitative report back in 2018, but I was interested in this long history, 100 years of how Muslims are represented on TV and film, a little bit of a survey of some of the web series that we kind of were forced to produce from our own community because of the lack of opportunities to write our own story. So recently USC produced a report called Missing and Maligned, which was much more quantitative and shorter. They're in the world of coding, but they produced almost the same exact conclusions that I did <laughs> doing more of a qualitative study. And they looked at two years of major films across the US, UK, I believe New Zealand, the, the top 200 grossing films and what speaking roles Muslims had. And of those films, mm -hmm. it was limited to something like 1.6, 1.7%, which yeah. is ridiculous. I know mm -hmm. some people think about, we have a small population in the US, but they were overseeing all these films. In New Zealand, it was zero speaking roles. And of course, there were really no women who were speaking, mm -mm. a very clear absence of black Muslims that were part right. of the Muslim narrative. So for me, three years prior, what I'd seen and surveyed, I kind of periodized it in a pre 9-11 moment and even a little bit before to the early 20th century where there was this interesting design of Orientalist narratives that were very much in brown face by yes. white actors. And then went into this 70s to 2001 period then 2001 till what I call the reckoning, which is the Trump years, the 45 years. Mm -hmm. So in this early Orientalism, what is fascinating is there, what I call it is the mystical Moor, who kind of operates on the same axis as what we call the noble savage, which is the American Indian who's seen as a Bar barbarous character is also this mascot of schools, right? To right. try to give a sense of um, competitive power. And at the same time, there's a longing to be, to turn native, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, the mystical Moor is somebody that you have as a white American contempt and fascination for. The contempt is that we exist in a land that has histories, that has stories, that has culture, that has deep Eastern spiritual philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, um, the, the fascination is, is that, and the fact that we have it and they don't, right? Mm -hmm. So they try to reproduce their narratives through, or they reproduce themselves through our narratives, right? Oh, so wow. we see films like Sahara um, and we see areas in America that are converted literally into uh, cities named Mecca, California, yeah. where they grow dates. Um, 
That's not that's ironic at true. all. Well, you know, you know, you know <laughs> where true. that is. You know where that is. And I'm sorry, I'm taking like kind of a little dance outside of Hollywood so you could see the way it's informed. So in this period in Mecca, California, as I say, before there was Beachella, there was the date festival in Coachella. Oh. And, and so you saw, if you see images from this period, see white women in kind of I dream of genie getups with camels roaming around in Coachella. And there's no surprise today that guess who the mascot of Coachella Valley High School is? <laughs> it's the, the Arabs. It's the oh, Arabs. No, it's it not. Is, it's the same. It was the same exact imagery of how the American Indian was portrayed as well. So that's why I saw a sort of similarity. And so, okay, I'm going to make those connections for you in a second. So in this Coachella Valley, Palm Springs, Joshua Tree area, there's an area called um, 29 Palms. And in 29 Palms, if you go on the freeway and you go south, the 10 freeway, that's where Mecca, California is. That's where these date palm trees are and you could get your date shake. The date shake. Mm -hmm. Yes. My husband loves those. <laughs> I love those too. Now, if you go north, what do you see? an American military base that also has been used as a simulation for Iraq. And they called it, oh, yes, my. they called it um, Wadi al-Sahar, which it should be Wadi al-Sahar. And Arab actors got their opportunity to be actors in that simulation. So just think uh -uh. about the way that they're marginalized on screen, but they can go play an Iraqi on an American military simulation for war campaigns in Iraq. Amazing. I did not know so, that. So, and, and then of course, this is the place, as I said, where they filmed, you know, the Sheikh or, and all these films. So that kind of image making in the desert is, a big part of American filmmaking. And the desert was also seen as this place where you could reinvent yourself. And that's how we think about it in some of the early Hollywood cinematic portrayals of the quote unquote Middle East and Muslims. And then the next period, which people who grew up pre 9-11 are familiar with, but sometimes we're gaslit as if 9-11 was yeah, when the yes. major anti-Muslim representation happened, but that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And so what I looked at was what I call the triangulation of politics, public opinion in Hollywood or pop culture. And so the, that sort of triangulation. So the way that I think about this triangulation is we're not necessarily clear, and this is where we need to do more research. What influences or what, what initiates this start or kickoff of the images we see in Hollywood? Did it start in Hollywood? Did it start with politics? Did it start with public opinion? But what we do know is the connected influence of all those three things. Right. So in a pre 9-11 period with the start of war making in different Muslim regions, that's when we see the anti-Muslim bias in very explicit ways uh, represented within the terror genre and explicitly around the oil embargo, actually. So mm -hmm. it starts in 1973, because the notion is, especially since the US had unencumbered access to OPEC oil fields, that this is their oil. And so how dare this region and these people close up the pipe and make it difficult for Americans to get gas on the daily, to have to ration out the gas, 
And so there is this enduring despising of Muslims for having the power to do that. And, yeah. and that's why you see the portrayals of shifts as lavish and exorbitantly and unnecessarily cons consumptive, right? And so, and, and lachievious towards white women, right? Because yes. they, they want you to fear this brown Muslim poor and other, which by the way, is like the predominant represent representation of Muslims pre and post, of course, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, we see that in so many films up until like in the early 90s, uh, Father of the Bride with somebody yes. shouting out gibberish. Uh, we mm -hmm. see the Libyans have a cameo in Back to the Future. We also see hijackings. That's a big part mm -hmm. of the narrative. Mm -hmm. um, we see Muslims and, and also dovetailing with the um, hostage crisis in Iran yeah. as being... Um, aggressive bumbling fools right yeah. so they have to be menacing but at the same time american wit and might has to be able to overpower us mm -hmm. and even in indiana jones you see a oh, scene yeah. where um an egyptian brings a knife to a gunfight and then yes yeah 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 absolutely and of course there's a complete absence of women they're just as jack shaheen says droves of roaming black sheets yeah i was I gonna say that quote from him but they're just like everyone's like covered thousand films didn't he yeah yeah in from the start of representation of arabs on screen till 2000 and then he had a follow-up book because clearly that was necessary mm -hmm. and the other thing which is interesting that a lot of people don't talk about is pre-9-11 the most redemptive portrayals of muslims come from black filmmakers and not all necessarily Muslim who do work to portray the black Muslim experience. So mm -hmm. Julie Dash in Daughters of the Dusk starts off her film, which people might not know it, but she's such a phenomenal filmmaker. And this film is about the Sea Islands off of Georgia where enslaved Africans found, became fugitives, found refuge, created maroon communities. And she shows the preservation because there's this undisrupted history of Muslim, Black Muslim experience. So there is like the call to prayer in the beginning. It's gorgeous. It's stunning. And Spike Lee with Malcolm X and even in Menace to Society. Yes. The, the, the moralistic character is the Muslim. Muslim Kai. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wish we, we saw that more, but I think there is a concerted effort in Hollywood to kind of uh, downplay that narrative because I don't think they want people to know that about, we think upwards of 20% of the slaves that were brought into America were Muslim. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think they want to acknowledge slavery, first of all, yeah. like, let's forget it, no reparations needed. And then that, oh, that we, we took a civilized people and brutalized them over yeah. here and took away their religion and then wrote the first amendment. Also, no uh, as is a lot more research that is being done is exposing the fact that a lot of Muslim folks, Africans who were enslaved wrote and spoke Arabic. And so that, mm -hmm. that literacy was very threatening to folks who enslaved them 
because most of them were not literate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's an interesting history, but by the way, I'll just plug something on the side that is new. And I don't know if a lot of folks know, but I'm on the executive producing team of a docu-series that we're going to hope to do with a major broadcasting company about the history of American Muslims. We call it a history revealed. And so those are the narratives that we're going to go into. And we're going to hope that narrative writers are going to pick up those stories and start to really expose this history in creative, thrilling ways. And so we're going to set the foundation of that. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, but overall, the, the work in the report has one of the basic findings is that Muslims are either raced as brown foreign others or mm-hmm. erased, right? As we talked mm-hmm. about Black Muslims, um, uh, Muslim women, queer Muslims, Muslims with disabilities, we can't, we are just one note. And then in a post 9-11 period, what we see is the good Muslim versus the bad Muslim. Mm -hmm. And that endures today, especially with our liberal progressive compatriots who Mm -hmm. want us or want a secularized version of us to be the good one. Yeah, the good Muslim. Or you're not like, you're not like the other Muslims. What does that mean? Or, what does or, that mean to you? <laughs> right. Or the fact that Uzma started with a critique of Rumsfeld, that mm-hmm. is not good Muslim, you know? Yeah, I'm not a good Muslim. <laughs> the, good, the good Muslim would have gone up and said, you know, we must, we, we he, must all get along. Um, he, we, we will pray for all the souls. He did not know. <laughs> yes. Nope. He did not know he killed millions or whatever, whatever. The no, case was is. like, he was can go to hell. In hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was like, he can go to hell and we will I see will him go later. just to watch him yeah. <laughs> go to hell. <laughs> yeah, Allah, front row seat, popcorn. Yeah. You, so you basically <laughs> forfeited your opportunity to go on stage at the DNC, basically. A hundred percent. They'll yeah. never let me go on there. Yeah, yeah. Usually we, we talk about, when we talk about Palestine, it's so funny. So the Pop Culture Collaborative naturally has led to this newer study with a, I think a smaller sample, but like yeah. you said, the the findings have been the same, that Muslims very rarely have positive roles and Muslim women have even fewer, which um, I think lends us to things like our podcast, you know, our Muslim Congresswomen, um, and a lot of our Muslim creatives who are women, I think leading like Amani with, you know, Muslim Girl, leading the way, Lisa Vogel, um, at Macy's leading the way, paving the way for more Muslim voices, but in entertainment in particular, I think it's really important. And, you know, now that you're on the Muslim narrative cohort, can you talk about how all of these studies and what we're seeing has lent itself into this cohort and what is the work that you guys are planning on doing? Part of the Muslim narrative cohort, or let me rephrase that, sorry. So I mentioned the docu-series, which people can look up American Muslims, the core leadership team are people from the Muslim narrative cohort, which Pillars and Pop Culture Collaborative put together because they have a narrative theory of change that we need to not shift representation that it, or like work on our messaging. That's old school PR mm-hmm. and old school PR doesn't stick. You have to create a narrative system, a universe, a multiverse that completely transforms the paradigms of how we understand who we are and how we're understood, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
that requires us to build up many narratives, right? Not just one, not just a monolithic overview of we are good American Muslims, we are assimilated into this part. No, what we need to do is what Zahir Ali and Hussein Rashid were part of this, this team, as I said, of American Muslims, what we have recognized that is required is to show how we are a part of America becoming America, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, 100%. And not as contributors, because that sort of contribute, contributorism, <laughs> I don't know if that's a real word, makes it also appear that we have to, that that's the only acceptable entry point is if we have contributed as doctors or any sort of professional career that should justify us being here, right? Yeah. So the way that we're thinking about the work that we do is we need tons of stories. We need also stories that don't just operate around authenticity because guess what? Muslims did do terror attacks that mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's a question about the, the quantity, the amount, the proportionality, right? So when we think about the numbers around how many Muslims are portrayed as quote unquote violent terrorists, it's somewhere between 40 to 50% in, in the study, the missing and maligned. What that means is that over 700 million Muslims of the 1.8 billion Muslims are actively doing terror attacks. Which yeah, is true. Right, right. And you could find way more white Americans doing that than us. So imagine, and this is what I've always said, imagine if we took the FBI percentages of who's committing terror on domestic soil or quote unquote terror, violence, uh, massacres, whatever you want to call it, and then took that proportion and displayed it on Hollywood screens. We wouldn't need, it's unimaginable to yeah. think about the amount of stories that would do that work. Or even it's unimaginable to think about a story from the perspective of an Iraqi kid during the invasion, right? Right. Because mm -hmm. yeah. we've never seen that. We don't, I yes. mean, I guess. People don't want to know. Yeah, I haven't seen Mosul. Some people have said that um, that series shows some of that, but I, I haven't watched it yet. But basically we also need to be defined outside of the terror paradigm. Cause as I yes. mentioned, that's not part of our everyday lives. And what do our everyday lives look like? And so anyways, long-winded answer, but- No, I love it. That, that's the way, and Pillars Foundation for folks who don't know- we love that. Muslim philanthropy group that has been very avant-garde about how they see mm -hmm. philanthropy and and empowering financially and through resources the way that muslims can do the creative work that they do and so basically so, we're i'm sorry go ahead no 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 go on i was gonna say they have like millions of dollars that they're going to invest in muslim mm -hmm. creatives or oh, creatives yes. who are going to elevate expand and honor yeah. Muslim voices. Yeah, Muslim yeah. voices. Muslim narrative, right? Yeah. So with Riz Ahmed, they and a advisory board of incredible Muslim creatives like 
Nida Mansour, who did Lady Parts. Mm-hmm. She's such a great show. I love that show. Oh, I was <laughs> thoroughly impressed by it. Because it was once, so I funny. Saw, once I saw the trailer, oh, like women in headscarves doing yeah. punk rock. And then it was so much more than that. It was so, so much more than that. Yeah. Um, so, and Rami Youssef, Hassan Minhaj, uh, I believe Mahershala is also mm-hmm. part of this advisory board. Mm-hmm. So this advisory board is launching a Muslim artist fellowship, $25,000 unrestricted that they're gonna give out to Muslims in this cohort, writers, directors, people on the verge of really breaking out that need that extra push and support. So that's how Pillars is thinking imaginatively around this work. And also I I wanna not forget to mention when I was, this is the problem with being academic. You have an hour and a half to explain your point. And yeah. so like, you need like one, a month. Yeah, one to, three, <laughs> one to three minutes, which I haven't done at all with any of these answers, by the way, is not sufficient. But what, what I was talking about with authenticity, and this connects back to the philosophy around pillars and how we see quote unquote representation. So authenticity is not a helpful paradigm. Neither is just representation outside of the realm of presence and power, right? How we're overrepresented in some cases. Yes. And we're hyper visible when it comes to violence. But Zahir Ali, who I mentioned, is a brilliant scholar, oral historian. He and I, in putting together this report, came up with this concept of intimate knowledge. So, how can we use that as a paradigm instead? for how to filter out storytelling. People that come from a community and have intimate knowledge about it are the ones who should be producing the work, right? You can't just get a random Syrian doctor who um, then you bring in as a consultant for a show about Syrian refugees. If they haven't, so that, I mean, they might come from a cultural understanding, but if they are not a Syrian doctor who's done work with refugees, then, or as part of a community of refugees, then that's not helpful either. So that's why mm-hmm. we can't do this one-to-one representation or one-to-one authenticity because it gives people or lets them off the hook to just say, oh, yeah. I checked that box. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. There's a at the table. We got diversity. Yes. We're yes. done. <laughs> yes, yes. And there's no engagement of the politics of the person in terms of what the overall outcome of the creative work that you want to do should look like. I mentioned a little bit earlier, my daughter is very much yes. like she came to me one day and she's like, I think I want to be an actress. And, da, da, da. and I have to tell you, I'm not going to lie. I'm part of that, the old school. Where I was like, really? Because I had seen some of these things and what, or, or in general, take Muslim aside of it. Like to, to your point, like she just happens to be a Muslim. She's an actress that just happens to be Muslim. Right a lot of these roles for her particular age group is over-sexualized. It just is. Like she's 15. First of all, she looks like she's 10. So I just, I don't want her to play these over-sexualized yeah, yeah. roles anyway. How do we as parents, and that's going to be the number one concern for any Muslim yeah. mom, any of them. Yeah. And I'm as liberal, quote unquote, liberal and cool and low key about these things. And I'm like, Zara, I don't want you to play somebody who's 10 times older than what you are, just because I just don't think that that's appropriate. I don't care what you are. How do we 
um, as parents help guide our children who do want to start controlling the narrative, want to, to think outside the box, want to be some of these writers. Um, you know, part of the the scandal with Rami, I loved his, I love that he showed a different version. You know, he was this very um, conflicted American Muslim, which all of us have, have some been. of that. In, uh, <laughs> all of us have that, okay? Whether some more extreme than others. In, in, in watching him on screen, we were like, cringing a little bit because it's so true right because we know somebody that's like oh I don't know what to do about this but that's the truth of it we are a very fallible culture yeah. and community yeah but, and, and it, it's it's okay to show that we are so nuanced yeah. right but how do we one maybe this is not going to be able to answer it on this podcast but how do we as a community one help help our kids who want to go into this to, to, to pick maybe some age appropriate roles. And two, how do we break that stigma and showing our dirty laundry? Cause some, we do have it yeah. and it's okay because we are showing an authentic version of ourselves, whether or not we personally agree with it. Yeah. For, there's a couple of things I recommend for Rami. What he does say is if you watch the show, there is no dismissal of Islam. There's a critique Not at all. of the way Muslims engage with or understand their faith and exactly. sometimes also use that as rationale for things that shouldn't be used, right? Exactly. And, and we are fallible. Also, imagine if it was just a perf the perfect pristine Muslim. One, when we're the doing mosque on the prairie was yes so. exactly and, <laughs> the, and there's a you're show like, like you're not that. real like, oh yeah. <laughs> so sweet and perfect <laughs> and halal <laughs> right and actually i think it does us more internal and community damage to have mm -hmm. unrealistic portrayals they're just as unrealistic mm -hmm. as ones that exclusively show violence because if we're measuring ourselves to Up something to that, that is literally godly is also it's it's a I don't want to say a violation of our faith but we acknowledge that we are human and we forget exactly yes right and we're, we're, we're constantly on a quest to learn and do to, better and to and remember be better. and to yeah. remember to connect us back to divinity to source and I think it's helpful to see when people slip up because it not that it gives us permission, but it makes us reconcile the human experience in a way mm -hmm. that I find helpful, right? So, you know, that's up top. Um, I think that we just, we've been so traumatized by the ways we've been colonized that mm -hmm. we need to do that decolonizing work even outside of Here. the exact yeah. Hollywood, TV, film, representation, that whole world. And that's that's even something that Pillars talked about when they did this blacklist with, or they did this Muslim list with blacklist, which is a group that takes scripts that might've been blacklisted and gives them an opportunity to be read and seen by uplifting scripts that they find interesting and valuable, but now they do competitions within communities. And so what they found, although they found incredible scripts. So I think there are about 10 that they've selected and you can look at um, pillars, blueprint, they explain the ones that made it um, as finalists. Although there were these great scripts, they've said strangely or sadly, 
I mean, they didn't even anticipate this, but sadly there was an abundant amount of scripts that internalized the terror genre. Oh, and no. so they mm. wrote to that. That's how they saw their Muslim storytelling experience being able to be received. Yeah. And so, you know, that's separate work we have to do. Yeah. But to the sexualization question, which I think is fascinating and important, two other things. One is through Rami's conversation with Mahershala Ali for A24's magazine, something interesting was revealed. Mahershala Ali has a writer that prevents him from doing um, sexual mm -hmm. scenes. Hmm. And I haven't visited- And a writer is a clause that says the actor will not engage in such and such activity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. in his contract. And I haven't watched the totality of his work, but even from, what is that show? Oh my God. That show uh, uh, about the president. Um, West Wing? No, 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 no. Um, with the, uh, <laughs> with Kevin Spacey. Oh. Oh yeah. Uh, House of Spades. House of Cards. House of Cards. House, House of, of Cards. Cards. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So even when he was in House of Cards, there was a suggestive scene, but he didn't do any kissing, nothing. Hmm. Right. Mm. Um, so go back and look at his film. I'll have work. to go back and look now. Yeah, so, now I feel like I can't I'm remember have to go him back. ever being in a compromising situation like that. But and I this think is, that this is... is before his Oscars. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's that part, and then the second part, which is 15 year olds, people who are part of Gen Z, they have what we didn't have, which is tools at their hands to create the roles and we didn't get into this part which is mm -hmm. like in the reckoning moment there are so many web series there's yeah storytelling that comes from our community that can be produced from our community east of la brea which was supported by pop culture collaborative with samir gardezi marguerite hill from muslim anti-racism collaborative is a is a web series that mm -hmm. has won multiple awards and they just didn't see the portrayal of a friendship of a bangladeshi girl and a black muslim girl in los angeles and they wanted to tell that story that also was in an area that is like heavily Mexican so that you could see just the vibrant cultural life of where Muslims aren't just also isolated, right? They live right. in other communities. And so they created what they didn't see. And I think your daughter, and so this is the other part of the story, which is acting itself is a profession. And I've acted before, so I definitely see the power in doing that work, which is incredible, thoughtful, skillful, but actors who produce and write their own work who yes. give themselves the power mm -hmm. and direct to do the storytelling that they want to do and see. Mm -hmm. And she can do it on TikTok, you know? Yes. And she, and she, can, she can gather her friends and do a YouTube, an IGTV web series. Right. And yeah. start, I would recommend start with doing that work first. Yes. So you understand the process. You have something to show as an example of the work mm -hmm. you can do. And of course, if you're doing stories that resonate with you, your acting is going to be better. Yeah, 100%. That resonates with us just because yeah. that's why we have the podcast, because there was nobody mm -hmm. doing, like, we didn't hear other voices like ours, like, you know, Exorcist Cheeto Barf and, you know. <laughs> going to homecoming like we don't have that like you're either in this politics is on the same, yeah, in the, in the same conversation no and you know you it, they're either really religious or they're just on the opposite spectrum and we're like we're not either of those like yeah. let's mm -hmm. just take the mic ourselves and do it 
Like if yeah. it's not there, let's create it. And I love that you said that. And now we have to get on Zara to start writing and producing a film. So I love this. Yes. Yeah. Um, you're an executive co-producer now on Rami and we love hating Rami. So on the next season, so we watch it every time. We watch it. We have to. <laughs> We're fans. <laughs> we are fans. So on the next season, are you allowed to tell us if he's going to be as stupid? You know how he keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's like Rami. Can you just learn already? We're not that dumb, or is it just a boy thing? I don't know. It might be a boy thing. There's a. I can't is there think. something redemptive? We're still we're we're still writing. We're okay. still writing. Um, I'll just say there's an interesting direction mm. that engages other questions we haven't really been entertaining. I'm so excited to see what happens to Hali. I'm like, oh my mm-hmm. god, I want to know what happens. <laughs> Hilarious! Awesome! Hilarious. Awesome! Are yeah. we ready for rapid fire? Rapid, rapid fire. fire. Okay, Are we ready for rapid fire? Okay. Ready? What was your favorite? What was the first concert you ever attended? I I can't honestly remember. It might have been might have been Joey McIntyre. Oh, <laughs> oh that's why she doesn't remember. <laughs> or, or no, you know what? I think I think it was my dad used to get concert tickets so i abused oh. this all the time oh, awesome. um so i did go see like the cure and depeche mode when oh, they did cool. their reuniting or reunification tours yeah Ooh, yeah i think cool so one. i think the joey mcintyre might have been taking my cousin to a con- my younger cousin to a concert I, oh. I i i have to sit back and really as a historian <laughs> you're like i have to go back and fire. Back. i can't remember yeah. sorry sorry so obviously, you know, we are all writers on some level. And so I, I always want to know this. What is one of your favorite words? Hmm. Oh my God. Favorite word. Favorite word. Well, can I, do I give you an Arabic or English word? Can I give you an Arabic word? Anything. And then, yeah. Okay. Okay. I love the word shatra, which is the female version of a word that is very hard to explain in English. It basically means somebody, if you look it up, who's agile, but really somebody who knows how to do all the things with, yeah, 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 without a a sort of um, like professional training, like somebody who's just quick on their feet and they can get shit done. Like a so, savant. Yeah. Wait, can, can I say shit? Is that... Yeah, totally. Oh, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> That's one of our tamest words. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, great, I'm, like, great, great, I'm the great, cusser, great. so she always. Usma's the cursor, and I'm yeah, always okay. like, Usma. I get my bleeped out by the, the, to editor, the show so. sometimes. I, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I also, I also love um, Sawaha, which is the name of my company, which is Wanderlust Stricken Traveler. And again, this Ooh. is the so feminized version of the word, which is Sawaha. And there's songs about which Abdul Halim Hafiz sang. So, yeah. I love, and we got a song, we got a song out of it too. But what is one of the things that other people don't know about you that would surprise people if they knew about you? You don't have to open, like, unearth the skeletons, oh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> it doesn't have to be secret. Yeah, it could be, no like, secrets. fun, like, yeah. oh, oh, I like the color chartreuse, and nobody else likes that color. 
you know, what people, you know what people end up being shocked about is that I am very comfortably an inter introvert. Oh, that's I'm so interesting. I My formula is 80-20. 80%, sometimes 90, I have to be by myself to be mm. able to decompress and to show up in the way that and I And to do. be who you are. Tens, yeah, tens, you 20. have to like... Um, yeah. I, I that, really that scholarly people have to be like that because I feel like, especially your work is so heavy. Mm -hmm. um, like you probably just need to process it on your own. People like me got to scream it out to the world and like have soapboxes and be like, God damn it. Like, why is it this way? <laughs> you know? Well, I like, I like to be able to be an active listener as opposed to a passive listener yeah. when mm -hmm. I'm around people. And that's how I always say my memory is like an elephant on ginkgo biloba, but that's how I can store things in the hard drive of my mind is because I'm present for it. But otherwise, if I'm tapped out, and then I show up, it's one of the worst things for me. Yeah. Oh, that's actually recognize. interesting. Yeah, it's We're, not We hope that you brought yourself because we certainly think you brought yourself today. <laughs> so happy that you agreed to come on and kick off this month. And we're Thank super you. excited to see how the other folks who are coming on this month are gonna be helping to change that narrative and improve Muslim representation. Thank you so Thank much. You. For Thank you for having today. me. Thank you for the work you guys do. Yeah. No, thank you, you for the work women. you do. Women, women power all the way. Yes. All righty. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.